My guest on this podcast is John Danielle, who first became known to me, oddly enough, through uh, Shrimper. Yes. I was like a, a total Sebado fanboy yes. in the 90s. So because I had all the Shrimper stuff, I was getting their catalogs and then... Uh, And then you had a record on Ajax, which, because uh, Thinking Fellers, I was kind of yeah. clued on on Ajax as well. Underrated band, the Thinking Fellers. Really, a lot of very good records. The most contentious two bands that I think I've ever debated with other music critics are Beefheart and Thinking Fellers. Hi, you guys. It's you. It's about 8 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. I'm calling to see if you guys want to blow off work and go get fucked up. Get high. Have a bunch of beer. Get really drunk and high. Sound good? So give me a call. I'll be going out to get drunk here in a couple minutes. But the Thinking Fellers are like, you would just think that they would have a bigger cult than they do. You know, it's like a lot of super interesting records. Yeah, it's funny. There was a whole, there's a whole sort of forgotten scene around stuff like that. And Dieselhead, did you ever listen to Dieselhead? No, I didn't. Really good records, like really super good. And got no, I mean, so much has to do with whether you have somebody who can, back then, who could get radio stations to play it and stuff or just get people to write about it. But Dieselhead made some interesting records. She got a I went down like a little bit of a like amps for Christ wormhole at the, around oh, that yeah. time probably. <laughs> yeah, well those are I mean that's my that's 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 Henry Barnes. I, he's from Claremont and so like I I've known his father uh, Dick Barnes who's gone now uh, but uh, is the guy who set up my first ever poetry reading when I was 14 is like that's all that's all local scene stuff to me. Like, like Shecky from Man is the Bastard worked at Sumcrust Bakery. I would be buying coffee from Shecky and finding out, you know, getting getting the address of the German label to get the Pink Flamingos Man is the Bastard split via mail order from <laughs> totally that's like in my town that's everybody knows everybody knows Shecky before they know his band. timeline is I grew up in, in California. And then when I graduated in 95, I moved to Chicago. I worked for Touch and Go for six months. And then I went on this big disastrous tour of Germany. And uh, when I came back, I moved in with my girlfriend in Iowa, who is now my wife. So we lived in Iowa from like 96 to 2003. And so, yeah, moved from Iowa to North Carolina in 2003. And this is where they'll bury me. That whole period leads up to a pretty incredible run. And this was when I was at Pitchfork too, from all hail West Texas to like get lonely. Come to my door, I will hide underneath The table in the dining room, knees drawn up to my chest When the villagers come to my door I will breathe shallow breaths from high up in my stomach I'll, 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 I'll. 
for the front door to split her Waiting all winter For us on the on the kind of kids that were you know trying to start new dialogues and stuff and we're doing pitchfork like we, everybody knew who you were and everything while we were kind of watching and listening to the records that whole span which leads up to right when I guess John joined those records were just they seemed to be so much more powerful I guess is a, it's a very vague word but like the lyrical content and stuff the, the shift from sunset tree to get lonely yeah that's and there's also I mean you're citing so for me I get good around the corners gambit everything prior to that is like a sort of a study i think there's interesting stuff in there right but uh but a lot of the stuff which i mean there's people who for them it's the best stuff and that's fine too you know but i was sort of doing something that was a lot more sort of aggressively literary and it's you know like the writing wasn't as good as what i do now but i think that the project was like was kind of like i I wanted something that, that that was like nothing else right and then i sort of for me often as you grow as a musician you think you know i want less to stand out than i want to make stuff that's really good I don't care if people know it's me or not, you know, and uh, and I think in those early tapes, it was like, there are no records that sound like early Mountain Goats records. There's other records recorded on four tracks and boom boxes, but you can recognize one of my early records within seconds of hearing the wheel grind. And so All Hell West Texas is the culmination of that. I'm really super proud of it. But at that point, I think then we, I started exploring playing with other musicians and being inspired by that. And I think, you know, and that was a whole new world for me because prior to that, it's a pretty egocentric enterprise, right? It's really very much, you know, here's the thing I'm going to do. Nobody can tell me shit, right? It's like what I sound like for years. Peter and me start listening to each other, it starts to open up. There was a lot of other artists who were kind of given bigger platforms. Right. Around this time, you know, you you got signed by 4AD and we had seen stuff like Microphones and Jason Molina. We had seen so many of these artists that were sort of, like you said, totally self-directed coming out of that whole like palace, you know, mid 90s thing, which is sort of like after all the Louisville bands blow up, then this, this new thing sort of comes in. Um, and it's all Bloomington, you know, a lot of mm-hmm. it, and secretly Canadian. That's where I was born. Like 2000 is right before you kind of move into, I would say, in terms of people's awareness, that space. And yep. that's sort of when like, that's sort of like when Songs Ohio starts taking off and you'd already had probably a five-year run from Will Oldham. And, and I guess the reason I mentioned that sort of trajectory is right. that your your material to me was always it's very like you said you recognize it immediately because it's very inscrutable it's got you, you have a literary more than a musical voice I that's think. right that was true for then yeah i think i think that's changed in recent years but but then it was very much the mountain goats were born as a vehicle for my lyrics right that was what i was doing is i was writing poetry and going to poetry readings nobody shows up at the poetry reading <laughs> so so and i and i had a job that paid pretty well and 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 lived in employee housing uh which was no money at all and all my friends had moved to northern california and uh 
And so I was like sitting alone in a room all the time. It's like I would work eight hours and cross the yard into my apartment, which was a 30s building, and just sit there fucking with a guitar and writing poetry. And so I started setting the poems to very crude music because I couldn't really play guitar at all. Um, it, it was pretty, it was artsy. I don't, you know, I just like the, the word artsy, but it's kind of fair here. That, you know, it was like, well, I'll take these poems and I'll set them in something where I'll be able to smuggle the poem across, you know, to make people hear something that otherwise, and people don't read poetry except for other poets, right? So Was it just like you knew Dennis and that's what made you take it seriously? Like at what point were you, you know, before all that, when you first started and it, and it's kind of, it's kind of iterative and, you know, like you said, self-involved or whatever, it's the dare of, can I be this? Can I do this? How do I do this? That all, all that shit. It was a, just a thing I was doing that I was messing with. And I knew Dennis a little only from buying records from him. He worked at Rhino. And I think the guys from Wicker Spigot, who in understanding our local scene, you understand that Spigot, who never really crested nationally in any way, uh, were huge. They were the band who played shows all the time and who were extraordinarily weird and sort of like the like the, the paragon of nobody can tell us what to do. scene I and the, my closest friends uh, from back from high school and they were the ones who there's this guy Dennis doing stuff he had shot a cable access show called New Belicious Cabaret of all the bands that he was putting out in Shrimper which I didn't know anything about because that's Upland which is over on the other side of Claremont but through Mark and Joel from Spigot I got connected with Franklin and with Dennis and Dennis at one point asked me you know to give him some of what I was working on because I think he knew I was playing something I, I mocked up a tape and that was what he put out. Were you, you were saying Franklin Bruno from Nothing Painted Blue? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's so Franklin knew Dennis and them from Upland. Those were all Upland people. My people were Claremont, right, which is a whole different. There wasn't a lot of cross-pollination until Franklin was going to Pomona College and Dennis starts working at, at uh, Rhino, which is in Claremont. So you're saying, though, that there wasn't like a Pomona Valley like scene? Well, the Pomona Valley scene, there was a punk scene. But there was no, if you ever read Fact Sheet 5 back in the day, oh yeah, your scenes were very isolated and self-contained. They weren't, you know, like my scene was going to spigot shows and going to see The Unforgiven, right? Kurt Ross's band who had been in Kent State and going to shows like that. But there weren't places to play around Claremont. You could play at the colleges. Uh, Munchies was the, was the club where Dennis uh, and Franklin, I don't know how, I think they actually said, hey, you guys have a, a space in here. Can we play shows? But it became this epicenter. And for about two summers... It felt like there was nothing going on in the U.S. that could possibly be as interesting as what we had going on, right? And touring bands would stop through. Nation Ulysses played, Mechanormal played, Sebado played, everybody came through. And uh, But it was really like one of those scenes where what you were most into is what your friends were doing, 
right? And those scenes are great because from the outside, they look like just a bunch of back scratching, but it was actually, we were legitimately more interested in each other's work at that point. That's sort of what I meant at the top about the the problem with local scenes. It's not, it's not just the regionality of it. It's the effort that binds you. And mm-hmm. you, you know, it, you say it's back scratching and back padding. It's like, well, that's what you had to do because maybe I, you know, I'm super fucking hung over this day and I don't feel like going to practice or, you know, I don't feel like writing. And then I run into somebody at the record store and they're like, dude, fuck, I just heard this thing check it out and you go put it on and then that song inspires you to fucking write this like total opus but it's the person not the song the person who gave you the song you know being your friend being part of this community of friends who just want the shit that they want to happen to happen all the time so like you said you had two summers there just the right amount of people in just the right amount of age gap that they all are enough people to just make something happen on a social and a kind of economic even footprint but then a number of us moved away and that's what that's what often happens is like somebody instrumental has to go to grad school or whatever and that and that happens it frays a little bit spigot moved up north but then when they came back that was for like the second shrimper fest and it was a show i will never forget but yeah so that was the scene uh and it's sort of and then the run you talk about from all hell west texas to get lonely pitchfork was not super into a lot of that run <laughs> no that's I, like, we, I, I don't wear bad reviews on my sleeve but i'll go to my grave angry about the we shall all be healed review so. martin calls to say is sending old electrical equipment that's good we can always use some more electrical equipment That's cool with all of us We've been past the point of help since early April You were doing Last Plane to Jakarta as well at the right. same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was um, doing, I mean, there's only like six issues of that. And man, Peter ran across some of those this week and sent me some. I just, this is the thing about me. I think a lot of people are really good when they're younger and then they have some big burst of, of expression that's good. And then they lose contact with that. But I think I am go the other way. Whereas I look at Last Plane Jakarta and I'm embarrassed by it's just like hyperverbal. It needs an editor so bad. You know, it's like it just needs to have like one third of everything absolutely cut and redone. And Peter was scanning pages. I was like, wow, now I could reduce that stuff to some good sentences. But but I mean, I got a couple hits in. It was good. But, uh, but yeah, so I did like six print issues, I think. And then I put up the website in, I want to say... 2000 or 2001. You were having a very like old school print zine. Like you said, it's a little bit hysterical, but that was where you found the most hysterical writing. And what what I was about Mm -hmm. to say about Pitchfork is we were like almost immediately, we had all come from zine cultures. Like I had, I had even at the very end of its run, um, tried to write for, uh, hit it or quit it coming out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And, and Chris Ryan is now like at, you know, Grantland and Jess runs MTV news and, right. you know, all these people, JR is still out there, but you know, I, I had sent stuff to them. I would, I had sent stuff to Chunklet, but early, earlier, like five years before I'd been writing for tons of zines and it was all like hysterical. You don't even know who your audience is. So at Pitchfork, we really quickly were trying to move away from that. Yeah. And do like a music publication. So what happened with um, with We Shall All Be Healed? This is the one that bothered you? It was, well, it was William Bowers. I've talked to him about it since. I was Okay, I was going to say, because I was wondering if you had crossed paths, because obviously he's a, he's a teacher and a poet, and um, he's been very involved in similar things to you. So The thing about that review is like we really believed in that record. It was a huge step for us. You know, it was, yeah. a, it was a lot different. It was With Tallahassee, we were sort of hedging bets. It was like, I was fearful when we were making it. It was like, well, how are people going to deal with a vibraphone on a Mountain Goats record? with you know no wheel grind of any kind right prior to that yeah even the mix records like uh, 
nothing for juice, right? Do a little bit in a small studio, but there'd always be me in the boombox, and that was the reliable constant for seven years or something like that. You know, we went in with Tony Dugan, Bell and Sebastian's producer, right? And uh, and went to Tarbox, which was um, Dave Friedman's studio, and and we we sort of went for it. We didn't hire a drummer, we didn't go huge, but we went pretty big, you know. But then for We Should All Be Healed, we did a longer session, and we really opened up, you know, to having piano, to doing all kinds of things. And it was, it felt really risky. And then they assigned the review to somebody who really loved the boombox era. <laughs> I get that. I totally understand. You know, it's like, but at the same time, it's like, that's probably not the best person to listen to. Like, you wouldn't assign somebody who thought Bringing It All Back Home was the greatest album of all time. You don't give him the Infidels review, right? Because he, <laughs> he can't hear Infidels, right? So. Well, all right. But so you say assign. I mean, until 2000 and almost nine, there was no order. There was no anything. It was just, you've either done enough here that you can call, you know, you can call your shot and say, I'm reviewing this record. There was absolutely no structure or assignments or anything. There was no editorial decision-making. It was a complete free-for-all run off a fucking message board hmm. and, e and email. And so, you know, William at that point was like at the peak of his, you know, flourishy, florid, purple stuff. So it's cool you talked to him about it. But w one thing about that is right after it, two of the really kind of like stoic, heavy hitter, like major underground punk guys, um, Brandon Stosio, obviously, who's now, you know, he's actually just left Pitchfork, but... Yeah, good dude. Um, I know that guy. Yeah, so Brandon w stepped up for Sunset Tree, and then you had Tom Brian, who um, he can't fucking stand me, but I... I yeah, he's, he's, a good too, he's a good dude, too, though. We actually went to wrestling matches down here. I've, I was going to say, I figured you had some intersect there, but, you know, he did get lonely, and um, and I think, I think the coverage after that was almost like, that's not really somebody you can, like, dick around on their review, and, and we should have been, you know, it was a mistake that that got through, I think. But here's the thing, it's like... A bad review does you, I mean, for one thing, I feel like such an asshole going, how do I even remember? Because now I'm finally, I've been doing it long enough that like on the day the album comes out, I don't, I don't look at the internet that day. I've, Have I've, a, you, you get know, a cup of coffee and just sit around. Just do my, do my stuff, play with my kids, you know, but, uh, but, but back then, you know, I mean, I think I've been making records for eight years at that point and you still are in this, you know, the, the impact of your pitchfork review back then was, that was sort of at a, I don't know what the actual high point was, but there was a period in time when any band would look to the Pitchfork review the way you used to look for, did NPR give it a spin? You know, it's like, it's going to sell records for you. It's going to, people who didn't hear your stuff will give it a listen, you know. And they ran it on the day the record came out, right? They ran it on release day. <laughs> yeah. Like, and they made it the lead review. And I was like, I don't mind a bad review, but it didn't feel to me like he actually listened to the record, so. No, it was it was, it was complete axe grinding and we've all but, done but it. But listen to me, listen to me bitching about a review like 12 years later. This is pathetic. But <laughs> it's, well, it sets up though, because, you know, just to, not to crawl through the entire thing, you know, record by record, but when we really, when Pitchfork really had its like peak power, I wasn't there anymore. I had been gone for probably two or three years years after I blew out with them. Right. But the record at that time that you released that had the most, like it was the most bound to what Pitchfork thought of it was Life of the World to Come, which was also, I would say, if you want to talk about going for it, I mean, I think <laughs> everything about that record is as go for it as you can. Thank and it's, you. it's comical to me almost that when we just talked about, you know, the reaction to We Shall Be Healed, like that is, it's the biblical record of all time, right? 
In the holding tank I built for myself It's feeding time And I start to feel afraid Cause I'm the last one left in line The endless string of summer storms That led me to today Began one afternoon with you Long ago and far away And someone leads The beast in on his chain But I know you're thinking of me Cause it's just about to rain So I won't be afraid Of anything ever again I consider myself a really slow learner, right? And they tell you when you're young that you should do what you believe in and not, not think about what people think about it, you know? It's a very hard lesson to actually keep your eye on once you're doing work and you're out there and people are criticizing you. It's very, very hard to tune all that out. I think We Shall All Be Healed, which was written when I was in a heavy personal crisis, is, was probably the first record since the Boombox records where I really just did not give a shit what anybody thought of what I was doing anymore. It was like I just wanted to make this record, you know, and I didn't really care if it did well or not. I think you can hear it in the record that like my whole focus at that point, right, right around then in the Satanic Messiah EP, starts to return to just looking at the work and not thinking, oh, what will people say? You know, whereas with Tallahassee, I'm super conscious of being in the studio. We should all be healed. I'm super conscious of expanding. Maybe the Sunset Tree, though. I really wasn't thinking what people would think of that either. That one's heavy. Thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, I wrote that in, in, in also in... <laughs> oh I hate God. to say that when I write in Crisis, it comes out well, but it's true. So. Yeah, and that's it's why at the top, when I was just reeling off records, to me, to me, the Sunset Tree and Get Lonely are like... For me, those are the kind of like monoliths of the discography where... Thank you. And they're so different, and Get Lonely is so much more pared back, but they still have this incredible like emotional continuity it's like a clairvoyance where like this is the most i feel i've ever heard you thank you yeah no that's when i start to to be comfortable with the idea of writing something confessional because i grew up in california and so you don't want to be a guy with an acoustic guitar playing confessional folk music right but then those are all uninterrogated biases right you you know anytime you are dismissive of a genre and say oh well that's just folksy guys with Birkenstocks and long hair. I think what you're really saying is you don't you don't actually want to listen to their music, so you want to find some way of putting it in a box and dismissing it. Did Black Francis ever get in touch with you about Wolf and White Van? No. You know he's like a huge Larry Norman guy. Uh, I've heard this. I've heard this. He, he covers like the 666. You've got a real history of that kind of almost touching that outsider, you know, Christian, not Christian, you know, Larry Norman Christian. No, it's okay to say Christian. I have a, I have a, a pretty uh, heavy connection there. Yeah. Yeah. I would say, and I mean, obviously, but I don't know if it's literary or personal, but, um, it's personal. you know, it's personal. Great. Yeah. You know, uh, calling it Wolf and White Van and a lot of that, that work around that time was what kind of, you know, revealed to me when I saw the book come out, I was like, yeah, he wasn't throwing darts at Bible verses. This is, this is a big thread for this man. Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I mean, I used to teach catechism. <laughs> it's, I mean, the, the thing is, I think that literary personal line with Christianity, it's, it's not really very firm. I think any writer in a Western country has to be looking at, at Christianity to some extent. If you don't, you're sort of ignoring, 
you know, the thread that brought us the printing press, you know, and things like, you know, it's a, it's a very solid thread running into any writing that you do. And music, too. I mean, why do we have musical notation? Because the monks wanted a way to preserve the, the, the chants they were doing, right? So, I mean, it's like the, the connection between that is sort of like trying to, to take rhythm out of music. You can't do it. Rhythm is part of music, and, and so is liturgy. So is, so is, you know, the original purpose of music is either uh, communal or or large C communal, right? It's like there's, it's, it's, it's a big part of it. You have such a strong thread of this up to that point. And then, you know, John's been in the band and you've had a lot more, you know, you know, sort of commercial opportunities. You become a much more recognizable band. And I'm the single most popular musician in the United States. Well, you got, you got a lot of truck with the NPR crowd, man. <laughs> I, I have no footprint there, but yeah. So then there's this, this pair of records to me. Um, I thought they were very, you know, sort of similar, all Eternals and Transcendental Youth. I think all Eternals and Heretic Pride are more similar to each other than uh, the Transcendental Youth because uh, all Eternals deck has some guest musicians, but then you get Matthew White doing horn arrangements on Transcendental Youth, and that's where we, that's sort of when we open up. And then uh, Matt Douglas joins the band for the following one. So we've been looking at orchestration has been like a, the growing concern from Transcendental Youth out. If I look at it, the, how heavy Life of the World was, yeah, it makes yeah. me it makes me forget Heretic Pride almost. And you're right that All Eternals is almost. I guess maybe because you also that's when you went to merge. I'm probably being a little bit cheap in my thinking. Well, it's the thing is like there's so there's the two sides to reconcile. We were talking about there's my lyrics, which are going to grow as they're going to grow, and I think writing growth is pretty organic. That you know you don't you don't sit down and say, well, now what shall I write about? You just express in some way and see where you're going. And, Presumably you grow because most writers get better. For the most part, you expect a writer's late work to be better than their early work, right? Uh, which in rock and roll, people tend to think the other way. They say, oh, you know, you get your first album and then it's all downhill from there, right? But I think that's one way that I cheat that possibility is that, well, if I'm looking at it from a literary angle, of course my writing is getting better. It's like, how are you not going to get better at writing as you write more? That's just how it is, right? So, But once sound and playing with other musicians becomes a bigger concern, then the the albums, you know, the focus shifts a little. I think All Eternals deck, there's a lot sonically going on. It's the second of what uh, Soldier called our studio tour LPs. We recorded at multiple studios with multiple producers. And we're listening in a different way. We're listening, you know, the, the, the sonic textures are a bigger part of it. Nobody ever notices that on Mountain Ghost Records. And I get it. I don't really fault them for that because, you know, it's like the focus is on me and that's, you know, I get it. But like the ones that were recorded at Mission Sound on Eternals deck, those are some of the cleanest sounding, I mean, really, the, the Age of Kings, the drum sound on that. I just, you know, it's, it's lovely, you know. Halls of the Stone Tower in the foothills. Why should we hide from anyone? Those records heading into Transcendental Youth are sort of Eric Pride and All Eternals deck are looking more at sonics and at song structure and are less, I think, content or less less, less lyrically obsessed than when I get back to Transcendental Youth and then I am kind of starting to reconcile both the sonics and the content, right? <laughs> 
And and with both of these two, you put out the demos. Yes. Which for Life of the World, it, it felt like kind of a just like this is the template. But the All Survivors pack was like, man, there's just there's a lot of like really interesting stuff in there. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and it was on a tape. It looked pretty cool. right? <laughs> just I looked at it as like, OK, well, this is sort of the material part of the material that he was using to, to track this or to put together yeah. all Eternals. But the opening Catherine Antrim's kid comes up. It's like when the coach lets us out at the corner Thank you, because I do always, I don't, like, when people put out, oh, here's the demos, and it's just something they've thrown together, you know, that, like, I don't I don't like that. Like, if you haven't seen the other demos, it's because I couldn't make something that stands by itself out of them, right? I don't, because I don't like that. I want, if I'm putting something out, I want it to be worth owning in and of itself. Or if you don't own it, you know, it's a sound file, whatever. But but I, I want items to be discreet and self-sufficient, right? And so that demo was recorded here in the kitchen when we moved into this house, and it has a reverb on it that sounds real good. And I felt about it the way I used to feel about my boombox records. is like, you know what? This is the platonic form of that song. There's no reason to take it into a recording studio. This is what it sounds like. And I mean, you know what I mean? It's like, it was like there was a little bit of reverb. There was less stuff in the house to soak up sound it sounded good you know so i never sent it to the guys i just put it there and uh and yeah and, and with a lot of those demos it's like well they sounded good the way they are so don't mess with them let them be their own thing you can identify this isn't getting better or different and it shouldn't be expanded that's yeah. such a great that that's such a great thing to be able to do well and but also my team also knows that a team i hate that word but my, my band it's like peter i work with people who totally are good at hearing that who like would go in the studio because it used to be when you're early in the studio, people start to say, you know, what else can we put on this? And I'm always the guy going, let's consider the possibility that we don't have to put anything else on it. That sounds good just as it is. And everybody wants to say, well, let's put another guitar on it. If we don't like it, we can take it back off. And I always, and we have, you know, not fights, but like, I'm always the guy, the extraordinary conservative guy going, I don't want to hear the guitar because then if somebody likes it, I'll have to fight to have it taken back off, Right. Well, but now we're kind of all on the same page whenever we sit in a studio and somebody will go, well, what if we put a Rhodes on there? And we'll listen and go, nah, let's not put a Rhodes. And instead of running it and then having to argue with people who think it fits or doesn't fits, everybody's kind of on the same page now. Like things get to be what they are and stay as they are. And, you know, it's kind of, it's it's the advantage to being together for a long time is you you wind up on the same page. And there's all the the internal workings of how bands work with each other, musicians with each other, is the stuff that doesn't. It's one reason I'm disenchanted with music writing generally is like, that's the stuff that's actually interesting, I think, is like the the communication between musicians and the sort of the tension between what you intend to do and how you make stuff, which often has less to do with intention than just with performance, with something that resembles improv, even if you're going from something you've written, right? All that is the stuff that's very interesting to me, but in the age of the internet, and I don't mean to be a curmudgeon, I've been on the internet continuously since 93, right? It's like, I, I like it as much as anybody else, but but the thing is, when people write about music now, I think they, they need people to read what they write. They need to make back their money and stuff, and so uh, so whatever can cause people to get mad 
or to or to climb on board and get extraordinarily enthusiastic is what drives the writing. Whereas what's interesting is not what a lot of people are going to want to read. As far as I'm concerned, you know, it's like the, the the interesting stuff about how people make music. People are always trying to put some zine or web publication together that covers this kind of stuff, but the market isn't there. What you raised there with the internet is the, the reason it got like that is that money came into it. And, sure. and I this is all I've ranted about since I quit Pitchfork. And it, it's essentially why I quit Pitchfork. Once um, Mark Geiger, this massive talent agent, he used to manage the Pixies back when he did Lollapalooza. Hmm. When, once he and WME started representing Pitchfork, they were going to bless you know this publication as legitimate in the entertainment industry and the advertising industry was then going to get comfortable with giving them money. Even though you can't prove what you're getting for that dollar on the internet, they're still going to spend it just because the brand got blessed and brought up to a position of authority that before was an audience referendum. I mean, all we did, all of us, you ask anybody, ask Bowers, ask Rob Mitchum, ask Amanda Petrozik, who I just talked to last night. When when we put out reviews and there'd be message board threads where people were like, what the fuck are you talking about? That fucking song isn't even on that record. You are so full of shit. We'd be like, oh, God. I'm, oh my God, I am. And you, you get, you had no confidence. It, it mattered. Your reputation was being built by the audience reaction to your material, which often was, you know, sort of quizzical. And, and I think, and I think the way you would or I would want music criticism to be, it was an interaction between the writer, the fan, the author's mind and this piece of music from the musician. We've totally lost that. If you can't get people mad about what you write or extremely mad on behalf of what you're writing against, they will not read what you write, right? So I think that that part of the internet, whatever ecosystem, economy is is part of what they're thinking about. But I think the quality of the writing has, you know, over the past few years, there's been quite a great deal of good writing there. I want to I want to give them credit for that. I mean, I think you know, pitchfork is not a problem. The problem is what the internet has grown into. And no, and they, it's not it's not a question of the people that are writing for it. It's a question of what it is. I mean, now it's owned by Condé Nast, so it's not even something I think about because I don't think about Vanity Fair either. Like, who cares? I don't. My point is that the, the reason there was this problem is that I had a completely different opinion, which was we are fucking huge. We are the most important music voice that there is in the fucking world. We're more important than Rolling Stone. This isn't like 2004. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm like, we actually have the chance right now. And this is what we should be doing. We should make all of our writers like Bowers and Brent Crescenzo and, and even Brandon, Nick Sylvester, me, Amanda, we should, we should work on making the writers personalities. Like hmm. we're going to run this thing ourselves. This, we got to protect this thing. We're not, we don't need even, we don't need anything. Because we just go, you can do this at night. We we did it all. We did it all by moonlight anyway. Get, just keep your job, and we can be like that. We can make this big enough that we'll fucking dictate the terms of what happens. Yeah, but you know, not to be confrontational, but uh, but once you're protecting a scene, that scene is dead, right? It's like once because the the organic scene is not self reflective, right? The like when we we're having those summers we were talking about, you're not sitting around going, this is great and we have to keep it good. You're just doing the thing. And then as soon as it becomes meta, that really is when all the air goes out of it, right? It's like, and I think, I mean, I think that's natural. I think it's this natural progression of, of literary scenes of any given scene is like, it has a short shelf life. All that can really be left that can continue is the quality of the writers themselves, right? But the actual like identities of, of groups, of bands, of whatever, you know, I think uh, as soon as they become protective of themselves, that's a, uh, it seldom, it seldom emerges well, you know, because it becomes, you, know, you wind up saying that rock and roll will never die, right? You wind up publishing stuff like that. No, and you're, you're absolutely right insofar as the, the real path for a writer is not to become like a gang that is in control of this huge, you know, hugely powerful literary voice. I would agree. I would argue that, you know, hey, the Paris Review did it, but um, we weren't the Paris Review. A lot of us in the, in the, uh, we look for art, for, 
for narratives that head in one direction. But the history of the Paris Review or the New Yorker, right, over a lot of magazines, it's very complicated and goes through multiple editors and times, you know, and epochs or eras or whatever you want to say. Things that last a long time go through many identities, right? Right, of course. So it was a question of it was a question of how I viewed that moment. Right. And yeah, yeah. that's not the natural trajectory for most people. I was concerned about this thing as a as an identity, as a as a singular entity. Everyone else who's writing for it is concerned about what is my career as a writer potentially going to be and do I have one? Right. That's exactly what it was. I came from a kind of protectionist, anti-corporate, anti-advertising mentality. And I had this vision and I didn't own the thing. So it doesn't matter what my view is. So that's why I left. Yeah. But yeah. um yeah, I talked to Amanda about this. And it's like when you're writing for music scenes and writing for web publications, whatever you're writing for when you're young, there needs to be an editor there who's um, responsible and who looks out for you and helps you potentially grow. Because back when in the 80s, when you're writing for, you know, in the UK or the US for these mid-level music magazines, the idea is, okay, well, now you become a writer and maybe you get a book deal and you do this thing that only you can do. You only have, you're the only person who has this voice. And that's something you did because you and I both wrote for 33 and a that's right. It was. It, it took me a while, and uh, and I wasn't. I, I didn't pitch. Somebody called me and said, "Hey, do you want to? How come we haven't gotten a pitch from you?" And I said, "Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like the kind of music I'm into is not the sort of stuff that that y'all are covering." And uh, so I got an idea, but but it's. Uh, I don't like to ask people to pay attention to me. <laughs> it's like it's embarrassing to me. So <laughs> so so I sort of wait until somebody says, "Hey, I like what you do. Do you do you want to do something?" I don't like to write about a new review, a new release because I think I need 6 months to know yep. what I think of a record, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> you ha there's no gestation. We talk all the writers that I that I, that I know and we talk about this all the time. I'm constantly hammering on it and they're like, "Yeah, but, you know, cuz what are you going <laughs> to But the internet has made it even worse is like now when when Radiohead does some surprise release, every absolutely 100% of everybody is expressing their opinion 4 hours later or less. Yep. And that's not I mean that's really like talking about on the second day of your of your marriage, what's it like to be married? Well, you don't know. <laughs> I told every kid that asked me about it, I was like, ask me in 18 months, man. I don't give a shit. I, I, I don't think that conflict is new. It's just new to us. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm certain that in the 70s, there were plenty of guys going, this is a really important record. I can't write about this yet. And people going, what, I'm going to cover it six months after it comes out? Are you insane? <laughs> so, yeah. So did Franklin call you about 33 and a third? Because he did um, Armed Forces, right? No, it was, I think it was David Barker, the editor. Uh, oh, David called you. Okay. Franklin's is like the best one, by the way. That is like the absolute best one. In, in and that opinion. record is that you can write about that record for a fucking multi-volume encyclopedia set too. Yeah, no, it's 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 super. Yeah, no, it's a, a special record. But like, I, this is the thing. It's a good thing I wasn't doing a zine in the early 90s or stuff because I would have been writing about what I didn't like. And I think you and I differ strongly in this. I don't have any interest in reading about what somebody doesn't like. I don't care, right? It's like, yeah, because yeah. everybody whoever went to high school is really good at saying 20,000 ways that something sucks. But you should grow out of that. It's like, if, if I don't like something, I don't want to listen to it long enough to say what I think of it. It's like, I only well, want to write about stuff that I can somehow elucidate what's interesting about it. You know, uh, I mean, there are occasional, you know, I mean, obviously, like, there's that legendary Chris Gow review of the Eagles. I'm glad that exists. You know? <laughs> but, uh, 
you know what I'm talking but that's, about? Yeah, but that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, that's why you need that, the dissent, because otherwise somebody else is going to say something that is great that you think is horrible and that is false. And, you know, you don't want the, the cultural referendum, you know, on, yeah, that's, on but that's, music I to don't, go a certain way. That's not, I don't care about the cultural referendum at all. <laughs> like, I don't, because I'm still, I'm certain. No, but it's not, it's not the referendum. It's that the kids are going to get told this is what's good. And you can't let people, you know, you can't let people get away with that now, if they're coming from that. I don't I, I like I'm cool with it <laughs> like, I'm, it's it's all right with with me if if like I mean because I'm trying to think of who I never name any names but like you know but who's really well regarded that I don't care for but it, but it's cool you know it's like because I, I always feel like like absolutely everybody and this is a positive thing about the internet absolutely everybody has their champions I let that scale so low that people are like to your point who gives a shit? Why are you worried about this? It's just some fucking band that has like a fucking fifteen hundred copy run of a record. Just leave them alone. Yeah, no, that's my that's the thing is like, and I, you know, also, you know, you have children. You go, you start to look at creativity as like even a band who like if you're turned off by their press package and their photos and everything, still at core, when people are making music, it's self expression. They're 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 telling you something about themselves, and if you don't vibe with it. I hate to sound like a hippie like that. Why well, actually I don't? Oh get man, you. you are from Claremont. No, I am. It's like it's like it's like totally. If you don't vibe with it, that's cool. But but I, I don't see any value. I mean, I really like strongly don't see any value in you know planting your flag on the hill and going, "This is the music we're against." Even though we talk, I mean, people always you know me and Peter actually. I have a newish song. Like my wife and I never we don't really talk about my songs, but I could feel that she didn't care about this song. And I thought musically it's a pretty interesting song. And it was kind of mean. I don't do mean songs, right? That's not me, right? But it was huh. kind of mean. Uh, and and she was like, yeah, no, I, I think it's kind of a dick move, that, that song. And I'm like, no, I kind of agree with you. You know, that's interesting because you, that's not usually where you would go. But Peter, on the other hand, was like, no, no, you're saying something that is fair and true. And whether it's mean or not, that's a fair thing to say. I, d I wound up revising it for myself because I don't like feeling mean. I don't enjoy it. You know, it's like I don't. Huh. I don't. And it, and it was. It's a song about a band. You'll hear about it later. It's. A, uh, well, you can't. You can't let it out of the bag here. I understand. Nah, man. It's, it's too 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 far down the line. It's stuff that we're working on right now. But uh, but. So this is. You're about to go on the We Who Walk Behind the Rose tour here in the fall. Uh, yes. And you have a warm up date in uh, Chicago. Chicago. We're up? playing actually a small club, and then I think the other one's outdoors. I think going. It's like next week. Are you predominantly going to be playing Beat the Champ, or have you got like you said? Is there a bunch of other stuff coming here? Well, I have to tell you, three of us in the band plus our tour manager are dads. So I don't know yet what we're going to be playing because I keep meaning <laughs> to make it. I mean, I keep writing down, I'll scribble on something. Oh, let's do this. Before we started this, I was thinking about. I want to do. There's there's like three songs on Get Lonely that I keep going. Oh, we should do that. I listened to a live recording from 2008 from the last Happy Night of Your Life tour with Khaki, where we were doing Moon Over Goldsboro, and it was really getting good, if I can say so. You know, uh, uh, and it's somehow dropped out of the rotation. I think in part because there was a we did it in Austin, Texas, and it was so good that night that sometimes you do one where you go, there's no point in playing the song anymore. It's been done. You know. But I listened to a New York recording from like two weeks later. It sounded good. So Get Lonely has like been something I've been looking harder at and thinking what we might do now that we're a, a full band that might be interesting. You picked my favorite record. Awesome. So yeah, no, that's what we're thinking. I'm very glad. It's like, because I also feel like that's one. I'm proud of that record in part because when it came out of the gate, nobody showed up and said, this is a great record, right? But Scott Salter, its producer, like on the second to last day of tracking said, you know, we're making a root fire of a record. It's not one that's ever going to, 
grab anybody by the lapels. But when you sit with these recordings for a little while, sit with these songs, they, they, they'll get into your, the soles of your feet. Sometime before the sun comes on, the earth is gonna cry. Like they were mirrors 